You will know Kate Mulgrew one way or another. I'm guessing different audiences. Uh, for Star Trek Voyager, in which she played the first female captain in the franchise, Captain Catherine Janeway. And for the Netflix breakout hit, Orange is the New Black, in which she played Galina Red Reznikov. She's in Auckland this weekend, appearing at the pop culture convention Armageddon. And she's with us now. Hi, Kate. Hello, Kim. How are you? What I'm a beautiful well. voice you have. Oh, what a beautiful voice you have, Kate. What are you doing with Armageddon? What are you doing? I don't know, but I'm going to get up to no good today. I can tell you that, Kim. I'm about no to meet my, my first um, faction of New Zealand fans. And I'm really looking forward to it. I think they're probably lovely. We're going to have a good couple of days here in Auckland. I thought you were on strike. Does this not cover the strike? This this is um, uh, not an interim treaty. It's a, this has been lifted and was lifted from the get-go from strike orders. So conventions are safe as long as we don't discuss struck material. Ah, uh, right. Which, uh, which I, of course, will not touch. <laughs> uh, how how much disruption has the strike meant for you? Uh, it's a double-edged sword for me, Kim, because I um, have been able to use this time very judiciously um, regarding a couple of personal matters, without which I don't think I would have felt nearly as um, as satisfied as I do presently about certain conditions in my life. I needed this time, and I'm grateful for it. Um, however, I speak for myself alone in, in, in my small privilege of having had um, enough of a little nest egg to get me through. I think there are many, many thousands who are suffering, and we need to put an end to it as soon as possible. The producers must see that um, very, very quickly, I think. I don't know what's going on, but it seems to me a bit of madness, if you want the truth. I suppose you know that I'm now going to ask you if you want to share what the personal matters are. Uh, oh, I didn't know that, but uh, since your voice is so compelling, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I, I, I have a child who's not well, so I've, I've been able to really attend to, to that child. And uh, it's, it's been wonderful for me, actually, and him, I think. I'm sorry to hear that. I hope things are improving. They are improving. Thank you very much for asking. Yes. As they do when you get to have the time, uh, the luxury of time and, and presence and stillness with someone you love, rather than trying to manage all of this by phone or uh, somehow digitally, I was able to be physically very present, which has made me, uh, made all the difference in the world. As I, I'm sure you're, uh, if you're a mother, you know what I'm talking about. You've written two memoirs, Kate. Um, mm-hmm. The first one, Born with Teeth. Were you born with teeth? I was. A full set of prenatal teeth, which if you know your Shakespeare, and I suspect you do, indicates that you were born a witch. Uh-huh. My mother said, of course, my firstborn daughter would be a witch. I'm absolutely delighted. So they had to, have, they had to pull them within the first six months, otherwise I could have damaged myself by swallowing them. I don't really see how, but um, out they came. So I've had three sets of teeth. I'm ahead of the game, wouldn't you say? Very much ahead of the game, and still with your third set, I'm hoping. <laughs> yes, I am. Thank you very much for asking. No, I care. And your second was How to Forget a Daughter's Memoir. Mm-hmm. Mothers and Daughters. Tricky, eh? 
Well, my mother, uh, this was not so terribly tricky, as you might think, a bit trickier with my father. I was very close to my mother. I was the firstborn girl. I'm one of eight children. Um, you, my mother did, did not have a mother of her own. Her mother died in childbirth. So there was a little switching of roles there, which is in itself quite eccentric. But it, it served us and our purposes until, of course, um, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and everything went to hell in a handbasket. And she began to at first stumble and then crawl through what I call the thicket. And I was there for every day almost of those nine years of her, at the, at the end of her life. Was, is there anything good about that, Kate, watching somebody you love go through that? Is there anything good about it? What a wonderful question, Kim. I'd love to meet you in person. I think we'd have some great <laughs> talks. Uh, yes, of course, there's something good, but it's hard. It's a difficult notion to grasp, and it is the notion of suffering. I think suffering in and of itself is what binds us, what holds us together, what clarifies us to one another. I mean, it's the one thing, suffering, that allows us to sort of step outside our own consciousness for a moment and realize that we are indeed all in this together. So uh, I got to share a little bit of my mother's suffering, which one does vicariously when one loves as much as I loved my mother. So to answer your question, suffering. Yes, the human. I'm hoping that we haven't lost her. Can you still hear me, Kate? No, I'm here. Oh, good. No, you just suddenly disappeared. Suffering was your last word. And that's exactly right. Suffering is... uh, You asked me a very good question. You got my answer, which is... I. I think I understood and learned how to suffer. Uh, that's the good thing that came out of my mother's having Alzheimer's for nine years, the understanding or the sharing of suffering. Did you, I think you looked after your father in his final years as well. I didn't really look. I had a wonderful woman and her husband there. She was the nanny to my own children, a kind of saint, I think, Lucy. Let me say her name, Lucy. And uh, she took care of them both. Quite exquisitely. I mean, um, there's care and then there's loving care. And hers was was so given with such tenderness, such exquisite attention to detail that um, I think both of my parents, certainly before my mother was plunged into oblivion and my father had his marbles until the end, um, were lifted up by Lucy's uh, great care. and I, of course, visited as much as possible. My father and I had a different relationship, um, a little tougher, a little more detached, a little more removed, uh, as was the way with that generation of men. But I loved him. I loved him very much. A charming Irishman. Ah, uh, and also a drinker. A drinker, Dad, yeah. Yeah. Well, aren't all charming Irishmen drinkers? <laughs> or the majority of them? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm at pains to stereotype, but it does, I'm, I too had an Irish drinker father. I just don't know why that is. I mean, what is that? Well, it loosens, uh, first of all, I think they have some kind of social anxiety, something like that. Yes. Uh, we, we use these. We use these words now, but they they don't really make any any sense. In the Irish sense, in the pub, it was a way of life. 
And for my father, I think the same thing in, in uh, Iowa, where I grew up to meet his mates at the end of the day and have a few belts before coming home and meeting and being greeted by eight screaming children and a wife who was undoubtedly pregnant once more. I mean, I think it was girding his loins. That doesn't excuse it. I wonder if I ever really had a terrific, a sober conversation with him, maybe the night before he died. But um, I think it, it, it loosens the tongue. They're witty. My father was a wordsmith, and it would all come pouring out in a very deft and charming way. Yes, sounds familiar. You lived in Ireland for yeah. a while yourself, did you not? On and off for five years in Galway, uh, outside of Galway in a little village called Uchterard. Someone had very generously given me their house. And while I wa- when I was not shooting Orange is the New Black, I'd run over and I... I'd write, and it was How to Forget that was um, produced in Ireland in the damp, cold, wet, austere, and gorgeous winters of Ireland. Would you live there again? I mean, it doesn't sound like you loved it. I did love it. You're wrong. I loved it. Okay. I did did love it. I love the people. I love the crack. I love the loneliness. At my age, I'm 68, you learn to either love the loneliness and embrace it or uh, a sort of terror sets in. So I went over there all alone and, and, uh, and faced that particularly haunting music, which was exactly what I needed to hear. Uh, I, Kim, I, I loved it. I really, really loved it. And of course, it was hard. All hard things are somehow strangely more gratifying than if they're not. I love Ireland. I love it deeply. My spiritual place. We've just been talking to an Irishman, actually, Paul Lynch, whose novel is in the book, a shortlist. It's called Prophet Song. And it's Ooh. about, it's a dystopian novel about, you know, what happens when society falls apart and we find ourselves having to get in the boat and sail to safety. It's extraordinarily Did good. Did you read it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you read it. I think it's great. It's really yeah, good. Yeah, well, I think we're, Paul is, um, is prescient. We're at that moment. and I mean, in more ways than one, we are approaching that moment very rapidly. Would you not agree? It seems um, that we have a sense of impending doom, which I'm trying to ignore as much as possible. What about you? Yeah, I, I can't ignore it. My partner is, is uh, Jewish, so of course he, we're terribly um, involved in, I'm not, we're not, he is, the, what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Uh, but I'm looking at Russia and Ukraine, and I'm looking at Korea, I'm looking at China, and I'm looking at climate change and uh, carbon footprints all over the place. And I just, I, I wonder about the, the man's inhumanity to man, Kim. It's not so much dystopia that concerns me, although with the advent of AI, or should I say, it is now upon us, that's inevitable. But I just think that we've become inured to one another in the way of true, just as I said to you earlier, in the way of truly understanding one another's suffering. We're no longer hooked in. We don't care to be hooked in. We've become once again um, isolated and uh, uh, and warlike, and you know what that leads to. It will lead to no good. We'll have, have to have some sort of massive course correction, um, and I think that uh, I hope that it will be good. 
I hope that it will be good. There's an awful lot of people doing a lot of work on the empathy front, and Paul Lynch was doing his bit for that in his book, you know, trying to make it clear that that one minute you can be this nice, liberal, middle-class person, the next minute you're, you know, you're running for your life because snipers are trying to get you. And I'm wondering whether you think Orange is the New Black did its bit for empathy. These people were not just bad people, criminals in jail. They had backstories that were fascinating and mitigating. Right. Well, this is the genius of Genji Cohen who created it. Um, Yes, it's absolutely about uh, stepping into the, the reality of someone else's life. But what I've always said about Orange is the New Black is that we're all a banana peel away from incarceration. Most of them, most of these women uh, committed misdemeanors. Very few were uh, in there on more serious charges. And I, least all of all. Um, and so there has to be an adjustment to this way of life. I'm not sure the conduit was empathy every time, but uh, Red uh, Galina Reznikov tried. She she built a family within the prison walls. She built a home in the kitchen, and she attempted to save as many as she could through love. It's a shame that that series ended. Was it a natural end? I don't know why it ended. It ended because Genji Cohen wanted to go out on a high, and she's the owner, she's the creative, and that is her her uh, prerogative. I think Netflix would have had it for as long as as uh, Genji could have kept going, but it's um it's wise, I think, to to finish uh, with that kind of integrity. We were in a very good position. Season seven was quite strong, and uh, and we ended it. I think it's right. You know, if it limps on too long... No, quite right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. As for Star Trek, do you... Do people... I I'm read an article where somebody asked you this question. We learn in the Voyager episode, the Omega Directive, season four, episode 21, that theoretically a type six protostar could be used to generate a wormhole. So... Is this an indication of what's to come? Is this an experimental vessel designed to somehow travel to the Delta Quadrant in superfast time by way of a wormhole? Do people ask you those things? <laughs> yes, of course they do. Wow. They're truckers. Oh. They're passionate about it. They're wild about it. And frankly, Kim, I mean, once I... like divested myself of my sort of nervousness uh, of science fiction. I found it riveting myself. You know, the Akutas <laughs> wrote a Bible. There's a lot to learn from the Star Trek foundational science. And um, and I learned it. I mean, just the way you put that question was so smart sounding, wasn't it? So very, very erudite. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, they really know this stuff. But you must have had to go to night classes to learn the stuff. <laughs> I did. Yeah, night classes called up, you know, for four hours learning the techno babble. And I had two young sons at home. So it was just a constant sort of, how can I explain it to you? Just wrenching inside, this constant conflict, bending steel in my brain because I, or I would always be first up in the morning with these impossible monologues 
on the bridge and usually last up at night. Um, it was an extraordinary challenge. I met it um, in the sense of discipline, I met it. But if I had it to do over again, I will say this, I would, I would teach myself in the Zen fashion to relax a little bit more and maybe have just a little bit more fun. But I was really, uh, I drove a hard set, I'm afraid. You um, have a younger generation with the star. I don't know, are they old Czechies or are they mostly young? Oh, the people who are coming today? The Trekkies. The Trekkies, oh, are they older or are they young? They're yeah. everything. Uh. They're everything. They're, they're multi-generational, which is, of course, what Jean Roddenberry had in mind. The grandmother sits with her daughter and her daughter sits with her children. And now her children have had children. So, uh, and there are cartoons that are meant, you know, targeting just the young people. But I think they all watch together. And that's the genius of Star Trek. It's it, it crosses all generations and all people. And also, you've encouraged women to take up the STEM subjects. I certainly have. And, and if, uh, if playing Captain Janeway has allowed me that privilege uh, and that honor, I, I, I could not be more grateful. Uh, that alone that single possibility alone, that perhaps I affected a handful of young women who were maybe thinking of going into research and um, turned them outward or upward in their STEM decisions or choices. Uh, I cannot begin to tell you how satisfying that is. How uh, it just, it, it, it's a feeling of you know euphoria almost. What took you from Iowa to New York City? When you were quite well, young, 17, I think. I was 17. Well, it wasn't a starship, and I didn't take a wormhole. I can <laughs> assure you of that. I believe it was a plane to New York City. I just wanted to act. And I wanted to get out. You know, well, you're, when you're one of eight, and there was tragedy around me at that time. My sister was dying, and uh, it just becomes um, uh, difficult, very difficult. And... Uh, I, my, my mother encouraged me strongly to leave as soon as possible. So at 16, I, I actually went over to London and, and auditioned for, for Lambda. But it was at 17 that I landed at New York University um, with my mentor, Stella Adler. And I've often wondered, Kim, I've often wondered if I hadn't been in such a rush, what my life would look like today. But there's, there's just futility in that wondering, isn't there? I did. That's what I did. And the rest, as they say, is my history. What do you think sometimes if you hadn't been in such a rush? I think perhaps I would have been a really great actress. Um, there's a likelihood that I could have been a great actress had I really, really approached it with extraordinary discipline and no time constraints without the anxiety of feeling I had to succeed immediately. Um, which I think was probably helped a bit by my mother. I might even um, have looked at another career. I'm not sure. I've always thought of medicine as a strong second choice for me. Um, but there, I didn't get there. I mean, at 19, I was already a professional. It was, it was off to the races. When you say you could have been a great actress, 
what, mm-hmm. you are a good actress. You are, as far as I know, you could be a great actress for all that. What's the difference? What would you imagine a great actress would look like, if not you? I think a great actress knows, deeply knows her worth and doesn't question it. There is no uh, kind of artificial ambition. There is a knowledge that this is the craft. Uh, it's going to be honored by that person, meaning me. Uh, there will be no further, you know, conversations about taking mediocre work just to make some money or to be seen. Uh, it isn't a bit about exposure or notoriety. It's about uh, a deepening of that gift uh, within myself. A little more time, Kim, a little less rush. I was in a wild rush, wild rush. And I don't, I think a lot of young actresses are, but in me, I was strong-minded, strong-willed, talented enough, attractive enough to, to, to make it happen very, very quickly. So you stayed, at, you stayed with Stella Adler for a year, and then you got an offer mm. uh, uh, with a, uh, a part in a soap opera on the mm. ABC, and you took that. Are you suggesting that maybe you should have stayed at the Stella Adler? Well, she told me to. Stella said to me, I have a great worry about you. She said, you'll drop out of the conservatory and skate into Hollywood. And uh, there was a little bit of prescience to that. Um, uh, but simultaneous with the soap opera was my stage debut. And they, everybody accommodated me when I was 19. The ABC said, we'll let her go in time for the rehearsals in the evening for the play. And the play said we'll get a car to make sure she's back in the city for her taping. And I think if everybody had been a little less accommodating, it would have been different. But, you know, when for years as a young actress, it was just wide open doors. I meant me. to ask you about that play. It was Our Town by Thornton Wilder, right? Yes, yes. And I've just read Anne Patchett's latest novel, Tom, Tom Lake. Lake. I'm reading it. I'm Rich. reading it right now. Yeah. And that's all about <laughs> our town. Funny. You're funny. And Thornton Wilder's Our Town is a kind of iconic yeah. piece of theatre in the United States. But we're not familiar with it over here. Can you explain the importance of it, please? Grover's Corners, New Hampshire. It's the story of a very small town at the turn of the century in New Hampshire. And it's a story of life looked at in all of its simplicity and philosophical simplicity. And I played the, the young girl around whom the play sort of evolves, revolves. And she says it in a nutshell when she says to the stage manager, does anybody ever really appreciate life when they're living it every, every minute? And the stage manager, who was beautifully played by Fred Gwynn, turned to me and said, saints and poets, maybe, not many else. That's all there is. And that's the story of our town. It's the story of life itself. And it's probably performed more than any other play in the U.S., huh? Well, it, it certainly is in, the, uh, uh, in, in New England. I don't know if you go further inland what, what's playing in Iowa or Wisconsin, but New Hampshire certainly and up and down the eastern seaboard. It's a classic. Beautiful play. Beautiful are you, play. Are you enjoying the Ann Patchett novel? I am enjoying it. You know, I thought her best was Belcanto, which mm. I couldn't put down. I like Anne Patchett. I, I'm, you know, I write myself, and I'm writing a novel now. So Are I'm, you? I'm, I'm, 
I am. And um, about my time in Ireland, as it happens, yeah, Kim, uh, it's called The Irish House. And it's a sort of psychological um, drama um, about women, what happens when women don't understand each other. Um, but I think Anne Patchett is very gifted. She's, um, as you can see, it's flying off the shelves. It's all over the airports. It's all over the streets. It's in Auckland uh, bookstores. Um, she's eminently readable. It's accessible. It doesn't matter that nobody knows, uh, the New Zealanders wouldn't know our town. What matters is they grasp the idea that this was a mother who was an actress very briefly in her life and had an, a, a romance with a man who became famous. And she tells it very well, don't you think? I do. I, 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 it's feel good. And I have an aversion That's towards right. feel good. What do you think? Yeah, I have an aversion too, but but I'm Irish, and I think you're Welsh and Irish, aren't you? Yeah, not it's, Welsh. It's, no, no. Well, My God, the father, I, I the father, to... the father would be whirling in his grave for you to accuse me of being Welsh. He thought the Welsh were very odd <laughs> indeed. No, Scottish, really? Scottish and Irish. You're, you're Scots Irish. Yeah, so you understand the aversion to feel good. Um, I, I I'd much rather go down a dark dark hole and find a place to weep. But um, uh, I don't mind passing an hour or two with this on an airplane. It's nothing I think that I go out of my way for. But have you read by any chance an, uh, an author by the name of Rachel Cusk? Yes. Have you read Rachel Cusk? Yes. Now, there's, there's a writer. What's I'm the book? I can't, re- I can't bring the book to mind I'm thinking of. It, it's called uh, The Outlier Trilogy. Yep. I Extraordinary good. Astounding. Yeah. What are you gonna, have you got a title for your book? It's called The Irish House. Oh, The Irish House. That's not just a working yeah. title. That's what you're going to be calling no, it. No, that's the title. And it's based on my experience there, of my five-year experience, and all of the extraordinary things that happened to me. And they do happen to me. I mean, they continue to happen to me, and I don't know why. What sort but of I think th- the Irish people are somehow available. What sort of, what, know, they're up. what sort of things have happened? Love can happen. And uh, intense loneliness can happen that opens up into a kind of um, secret world. Uh, antipathy can happen, unspoken, which can quickly evolve into something that's almost malignant. This might, may or may not result in a murder. It depends on my mood. Um, but it's sitting in front of a crackling fire at uh, 7 o'clock at night, tears streaming down the cheeks of my protagonist. And the joy she finds in that, I would say, austere kind of loneliness. When's it going to be out, this book? <laughs> I'm going to get you a copy. Don't you worry. I can't this wait. Will not be, this will not be feel good, Kim. I cannot uh, wait. I hope sooner, sooner rather than later is my hope. But uh, things are a little bit, you know, the publishing world is also suffering right now so everything's a little slower than it ordinarily would be excellent to talk to you have a good time at armageddon i will such a pleasure to talk to you i wish you the best thank you mulgrew and uh yes she's appearing at armageddon today uh because it's you know star trek fans turn out for it